1: and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has
0: experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system Or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple the guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed
2: Hi, everyone. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to new books in science, technology, and society. So it's been a little while, and I managed to leave for the summer and make it through part of the year without publishing some interviews that actually took place back in July. So first up in my series of long-overdue interviews is with Robert Brain, associate professor of history at the University of British Columbia, about his fascinating new book, The Pulse of Modernism, Physiological Aesthetics in Phantasyical Europe, published in 2015 by the University of Washington Press. In recent history of science, it has become commonplace to call attention to a kind of asceticism made possible by the rise of mechanical instruments for observation, notably of the sort observed by Daston and Gallison in their celebrated book Objectivity. The pulse of Modernism looks at different material that is no less implicated in the rise of mechanical observation techniques, yet describes a very different trajectory. Physiological recording instruments produced representations that were interpreted as affording a new kind of vibratory vitality to life, and the enthusiasm for its application to various domains even gave rise to the use of these techniques in early modernist art. The result is an engaging exploration of physiological aesthetics between scientific and artistic theory and practice, from James Watt to George Surratt and beyond. This is a fantastic book, and the union of art and science will surely be of interest to a broad audience. I strongly recommend it to those interested in European science and philosophy, particularly the rise of experimentation, visual studies of science and technology, and the cultural history and theory of art. Hi everyone. This is Mikey McGovern and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology and Society. I'm here today with Robert Brain, Associate Professor of History at the University of British Columbia, today to speak about his new book, The Pulse of Modernism: Physiological Aesthetics in Fandasy Europe. Robert, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology and Society. Thank you, Mikey. Uh, So we like to get started on the network by uh, having all of our authors unpack their own intellectual trajectory and sort of how the present work came about. So what brought you to the subject in the first place, and how has this shaped and been shaped by your own career writ large?
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, as uh, many things in my career, they're they're somewhat nonlinear, but I'll try to make them as linear as I can. Um, I come from a kind of mixed background, uh, philosophy, philosophy of science, then into history of science, then into European history, and um, my the focus of, uh, I had a broad e- education in history of science uh, at, uh, in, in Europe and at the University of Wisconsin and at UCLA, and, uh, and at UCLA I did a, a lot of European history, and I focused particularly on the late 19th century as well. Um, my intellectual focus in history of science tended to be biomedical disciplines, um, and I began by working on a dissertation which, uh, which I initially thought would be on um, medical instrumentation in the 19th century. Um, uh, and I quickly found in doing this work that the instruments that I was interested in, particularly graphical recording instruments uh, in the 19th century, um, had really migrated across a number of disciplines from engineering to physics to physiology to medicine, and then from there outward to a range of other disciplines uh, like, uh, uh psychology, linguistics. Uh, and a number of practical disciplines and so on. So I ended up writing about graphical methods uh, across the board um, in in my dissertation. Um, And 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 I was fascinated by... This was at the moment, of course, of early computer algorithms migrating between uh, disparate kinds of areas. And I was interested in this kind of analog instrumentation, a -hmm. relatively simple form of instrumentation in the 19th century, but that had done something similar, that had migrated across different areas. Uh, And then I was interested in the kinds of... uh, um, things that needed to be done to make this new this new technique work in a different domain. How to reconceptualize the phenomena, how to um, to, to recalibrate and, and d- design new kinds of instruments, and so on. Um, uh, but the. The the more immediate uh, origin for this work uh, really probably could be traced back to my postdoctoral work that I did at Cambridge in a collaborative project with several other people. Um, And there we were interested in science and society in the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, And what we were were interested in particular was the way the laboratory as a relatively new institution in society um, began to shape external values, external spheres. Uh, so the, the British empire through telegraphy and, uh, and, and, uh, things like that. Um, uh, also, um, of course, factories and farms. Um, uh, also, medicine, of course. And, and among those things, areas of interest that we worked on collectively um, were also art worlds. Um, and that was something that I was particularly interested in. Um, and eventually, after a certain amount of time, I, I, I decided that it was worth a project to kind of uh, to to try and understand that at this particular moment the area of my interest, late 19th and early 20th century, uh, how laboratory in this case the physiology laboratory in particular um bridge this gap uh and uh how people made this how people were able to bridge this gap to art worlds and of course uh, um it interested me for a number of reasons partly because i've long been passionate about the arts but because art and science have often been thought of as something um uh antagonistic or or fundamentally different um Mm -hmm. Creativity is often thought to be something, and, and particularly high modernist, late 20, middle late twentieth century kind of ideas, and across uh, across intellectual domains have, have have reinforced this idea. The two cultures divide, and so on. So to to talk about a kind of sociology of translation, to put it in Latourian terms, across this divide had its own had its own particular set of interests.
2: Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fascinating. And so before diving uh, into this book more deeply, I wanted to see if we could give listeners uh, a good sense of the actors involved. So how would you place the experimental physiologists that you study within the realm of other contemporary scientific actors? For example, you know, physicists, natural historians, sometimes their interests played across these different uh, camps, but they were also doing something new. So they were drawing on previous uh, previous disciplines and also crafting new uh, experimental terrains, and so I'm just interested in charting the landscape here a bit.
3: Yeah, sure. Uh, one of the things uh, that that I always like to remind people of is that uh, physiology in the late 19th century was a central discipline. Um, it was nowadays we tend to think of physiology as a kind of ancillary discipline uh, to a large extent, but in the 19th century. Physiology was often described as the queen of the sciences—a kind of cliche. It's not the only discipline that gets that label, but but it often is. And and uh, and uh, in when I was kind of coming up, there was a lot more work being done on nineteenth-century physiology, and, and part of the interest was that it was really, in some sense, a genealogy of big science—that the largest amounts of state funding, uh, state-funded laboratories, and really the laboratories a the university laboratory as a modern institution had its uh, start in physiology more than in any other discipline. Physiology laboratories um, preceded uh, physics and and, and even uh, uh, chemistry to a large extent. Um, that being said, uh, physiology has a, a number of disparate kind of origins. The, the traditional story is one in which uh, it begins in German medical s- schools primarily, uh, new chairs being uh, kind of – um, uh, hived off of um, uh, anatomy uh, positions and so on um, and uh, uh, with, with enormous amounts of state support um, that that picture is is i think somewhat inaccurate partially accurate partially accurate inaccurate uh, but the main point is that it uh, German physiology in particular enjoyed this kind of central support uh, and it became a kind of microcosm of, a, of, a, of an interdisciplinary science. That is to say, it drew upon chemistry, it drew upon physics, uh, it connected with, with, a, uh, with, of course, with natural history and biological disciplines and so on. The interest in, the, the kind of physiology that I'm interested in is primarily something that was called physical physiology in the 19th century. Uh, and that is a physiology that, that drew most of its inspiration from the physical sciences. And that was, um, uh, took as its primary task the measurement uh, of bodily functions uh, in their dynamic physical states, um, so the movement of the heart, the arterial pulse, and these kinds of things, and also uh, trying to uh, ultimately, in many respects, trying to um, understand a kind of physics or uh, thermodynamics behind um, behind these kind of bodily functions. And this is where the, the graphical recording instruments are, are interesting because they essentially had migrated from engineering and physics. And um, they become part of an, a broad attempt that could be described as trying to, make, trying to conceptualize the, the, the animal body as a machine uh, in the 19th
2: century. hmm And so you also begin the book uh, with, you know, in setting your overall framework with something of a challenge to uh, Daston and Gallison's influential notion of mechanical objectivity in which the subtraction of the experimental subject was a decisive aspect of scientific image making. So could you expand on this a bit more and how your work on physiologists and artists uh, kind of provides a bit of an alternative narrative to theirs? Sure. Sure. Um, So I... um,
3: uh, Uh, The work of uh, Daston and Gallison has has been extremely important for me, and I've been colleagues with both of them and and have thought about it enormously. But I've never found a lot of evidence to support their claims with respect to this kind of physical physiology except for in cases – Uh, that pertain to purely visual evidence. So um, the kind of things that they describe with uh, recording instruments pertain to recording instruments in cases of astronomy, for example, and personal equation studies, Um, and to some extent in uh, certain forms uh, of clinical medicine, where uh, recording instruments are, are taken to replace visual evidence of, of, of certain kinds. And there, the, the story that they talk about, a kind of receding observer and a certain kind of incipient notion of objectivity uh, is, uh, is, is, is probably um, accurate um, to, um, to a large degree. Um, the language of objectivity, of course, is a bit anachronistic, uh, the 19th century, the mid 19th century, doesn't talk about it. It has a certain life amongst neo-Kantians and so on. Uh, but more importantly, the um, the work of graphical recording instruments um, often really flies directly in the face of it. the The uh, experiments are often self-referential. They're often done on uh, they're often self-experiments in the, in the case of many uh, mm-hmm. uh, experimenters who are not trying to remove themselves at all, but they're in fact the subject of the experiment of the experimentation. Um, They're often interested in um, a whole range of kind of relays that occur between subject and object, between experimenter uh, that uh, that make any kind of idea of a kind of um, of a kind of neutral observer uh, quite impossible. Um, So it's one in which which the body is, is rather than being something excluded, is actually being linked in a series of relays uh, with. Uh, with uh, to to other to other observers and to other um, and, and to the instruments themselves
2: mm-hmm. so it foregrounds the body more than anything else because you know, yeah, the work is works. on the body itself that's that 's fascinating and so the other uh, so as for your own theoretical frameworks, you kind of uh, frame the two halves of the book, which, by the way, for readers, are the first is dealing more with physiology and the second more with physiological aesthetics and art. Um, and so these two halves of the book are framed uh, with different kind of work on systems. So in the first half, you describe uh, Hans-Jörg notion of an experimental system. And then uh, in the second part, you talk about uh, Harry Collins's appropriation of expert systems. Um, so I was wondering if you could spell out a bit what these two framings of kinds of systems mean for the work as sort of a map to the overall uh, book?
3: Sure, sure. So the um, the broad outline, the, the broad uh, map of the book is one, uh, the broad argument in the book is one in which I, I um, argue that the transfer of art to science from physiology to the arts, that is this movement, this translation out, outward from the laboratory into the artist's studio, uh, is one of a transfer of... Um, of, of a kind of experimental system that is the materialities of the laboratory uh, to the studio and in part this is a, a corrective on the, on a certain amount of work that's been done by art historians that wanted to, that, that investigated the transfer of ideas between science and arts in the 19th century um, and found a certain amount of it but often came up a little short and was unable to kind of account for the way that the art actually worked and these kinds of things uh, and what I uh, what I discovered looking at this material more deeply was that the transfer was occurring at a much more material level, at a much more instrumental level. So that's the broad structure thing that relates to the two halves of the, of the book together. Um, I'm very fond of uh, Hans-Jo Reinberger's idea of of experimental systems because it describes so much of what scientists do. Uh, So many laboratory scientists – my wife is a chemist and has her own system uh, that she works in and she has a – it involves certain kinds of catalysts and so on. Uh, But the uh, – and and it – uh, in the 19th century, physiology uh, was based on, particularly this kind of physicalist physiology, was based on a set of systems around a, 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 a complex of instruments with a whole lot of variables, with a whole lot of changes that one could make to uh, to produce experiments. And a lot of this work uh, has been done very nicely uh, on 19th century physiology by associates of Hansjörg Reinberger, like Henning Schmidtgen and Sven Dierig and so on. And they've, they've they very, very well characterized nineteenth century physiology in these terms, and I found it to be uh, an extremely helpful and um, uh, uh, a way of thinking about nineteenth century physiology that the field had been tending toward but hadn 't Quite arrived until this concept allowed them to really um, give it a, 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 um, a lot more definition. And then there's a lot of particulars that can be said about it, and I go into some detail about, um, about the role of, of time and, uh, and measurement and so on in, in, in these different kinds of systems. Um, uh, in the second half of the book, uh, particularly in, in Chapter 4, I talk about Harry Collins uh, and expert systems in a slightly different way. Uh, when talking about the, I talk at, at length about the transfer and the the, the various, some of the the important go betweens, some of the important figures who uh, who translate the the system of of experimental physiology as it existed, and, and this is in particular a person named Shaw henri who was a kind of a, a really strange character, a kind of... <laughs> uh, uh, he's well-known to historians of mathematics, interestingly enough, because he was a great historian of mathematics. He was a librarian. He'd, he'd worked in the laboratories of Claude Bernard and Paul Baer. Um, he uh, hung around with all these avant-garde artists, was involved in anarchist circles, uh, kind of a, an amazing, uh, uh, kind of poly, strange polymath, uh, polymathic character. But what he did primarily was to take the elements of the, of the experimental system and physiology um, and uh, uh, adapt it to the working practices of artists mm. um, and translate it into terms that uh, artists um, could understand and particularly that allowed them to carry to adapt it to the things that they already knew how to do. Um, and this is an important part of, 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 of work in any context is is allowing uh Uh, people to adapt things to skills that they already have or can be easily acquired. And Harry Collins has written very uh, uh, beautifully about this in many different uh, ways. And and his associates in particular, I'm citing the work of Harry Collins and Robin Evans uh, here. And in this case, the expert systems that Harry Collins is interested in are ones that allow uh, work. He has a whole characterization, of course, of different kinds of experts, uh, ranging from kind of uh, bench experts who are kind of full on the, our, our usual notion of expertise, but people who have um, what he calls contributory expertise, people uh, like a lot of uh, science studies scholars who can talk uh, effectively uh, uh, to scientists and and, uh, and engage in the world, but aren't necessarily trained or able to carry on and, and do bench work in sciences and so on. Um, in this case, uh, some of the work that i 'm interested in is transferring um, complicated uh, forms of instrument, instrumental skill into simplified versions of in- instrumental skill that artists could apply readily within their own uh, within their own uh, practices and uh, in this particular case, Jean-Henri devised a number of instruments uh, a, a so called aesthetic protractor, a chromatic circle, even an, an olfactometer, a, a, a <laughs> device that was used to to, to provide a measurement of, 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 of sense, of smells, uh, uh, and so on, to um, to produce certain kinds of physiological measurements of aesthetic factors, of line, of color, of, of sound, of smell, and so on, uh, in ways that were easily uh, manipul- manipul- manipulable. And, and one of the best ways to think about this in, in uh, I, I think, is um, to think about the, uh, the, the, the great American prophet of scientific management, um, Frederick Winslow Taylor, uh, and his use of the slide rule, uh, a slide rule being a, an instrument that, that any uh, mathematically illiterate worker or, or barely literate worker could, uh, could perform many of the functions of a more complex mathematics uh, simply by knowing how to manipulate a fairly simple instrument. And so, too, these instruments do just that. They, they allow uh, the artist to to perform fairly com- what what are uh, what are uh, what contain fairly complex operations but they can do so at a level that doesn't require uh, extreme mathematical skill
2: mhm Oh, fascinating. So I wanted to start getting into the book, actually, some of the meat of it. Um, so in Chapter 1, uh, when talking about graphical practice and fin de siècle, you argue that uh, temporalization becomes a really key uh, aspect of this uh, practice, right? You can actually, in these recording instruments you've described, you can actually see the response to the stimulus and how it varies over time. Um, but so what I'm wondering in all this um, is to what extent is that theoretical framework completely sort of established through the, the physical instrumentation, or was it based on more preceding frameworks? So I guess this is stepping somewhat outside of the material of the book, but just to get a broader sense of, you know, what is the origin of this, um, these concepts of seeing time? Mm-hmm.
3: Um, uh, well, I think, I tend to think of it in, in terms of the instruments themselves. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, the, the innovation of these instruments more broadly, um, are uh, these recording instruments, are closely connected to the, um, the development of steam power and a kind of dynamical forms of, of measurement in science. And this is done – this, this in, in many respects, is, is, was, was done in the early 19th century prim- more by engineers than by physicists, although it becomes part of uh, the new energy physics that emerges uh, in the 19th century – uh, so it's, a, it's part of a kind of broad shift from, uh, you could say, from static representations to dynamic representations, the sort of thing that, uh, that we know very well from the work of Norton Wise uh, and his uh, work on mediating machines and some of these kind of broad shifts um, where 18th century balance instruments tended to uh, be concerned with inputs and outputs balances and double-entry bookkeeping and so on, and leave intermediate processes. And, and that means leaving out the temporal changes uh, in in these uh, processes. Uh, uh, 19th century instruments were primarily concerned uh, uh, with these temporal processes. One needed to know uh, the the work of the steam engine. One needed to know, in some case, the, the pathologies, the defects uh, in those intermediate processes and so on. And these were inherently temporal. So, it, uh, it, and, and of course, this all becomes connected in the 19th century to a broad interest in temporalizing the sciences more generally. So there's a kind of there's a kind of macro level of, of this, I think, that occurs in the 19th century uh, of the temporalization of the sciences. But um, the crucial thing, I think, for for the story that I want to tell and uh, and 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 uh, and and others as well, um, is the practical implementation of this. How does one measure uh, dynamic processes in their temporality uh, in? Uh, with specific phenomena, with specific types of um, instruments, with machines, and in this case, in physiology. So it's a matter. Of, this is applying this, this to the, the temporalization of the body.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, in your second chapter, you deal with uh, the enthusiasm around a protoplasm. So, uh, which. First, it would be great to hear, you know, what was slash is protoplasm and why it was so influential on conceptions of not just, you know, um, processes within the human body, but just relations between, you know, all kinds of biological bodies in nature.
3: Yes. So protoplasm was a kind of a discovery along the way. Um, of course, we all know what protoplasm was, and I'm old enough to have remembered from school biology, we were still learning about protoplasm, and I even had a big model of it once when I was a kid uh, and then it kind of disappeared from from all biology and all existence and it was kind of a, a dirty word. I uh, came across I, I became interested in, in this protoplasm business largely through, the, uh, through these many of these people working in physiological aesthetics who kept talking about this vibrating protoplasm as a kind of substrate. Uh, and I was puzzled by it, and I went to a number of my friends who were historians of biology in the late 19th century and asked them, and many of them said, yes, there's a lot of that kind of talk around, scratch their heads. Uh, you know, there was a way in which a good deal of this had been um, – uh, Kind of, I don't know, ignored over uh, by historians of biology, particularly uh, in the wake of uh, the the kind of neo-Darwinian kind of concerns, and uh, where protoplasm was the was precisely the thing that had to be kind of crushed. And so there was a, so there was a kind of, uh, and and as I began to kind of try to figure out where this. Uh, came from, and I found my way to Huxley and to Heckel, uh, and then I found this vast literature in the nineteenth century uh, on protoplasm. I, I sometimes describe it as a lost continent of of, mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, of, of study that um, that really holds very very strongly. Uh, so then it became a matter of understanding, in part, what this discourse was uh, and and what the the theory of heredity was. What protoplasm did in Monist thought because it it, it linked up a number of different ideas in the conceptual architecture of particularly Haeckelian monism, uh, which was wide had uh, had many many adherents, uh, especially in in science right through the 1890s to some extent beyond, uh, uh, and uh, and becomes an important part of the uh, of the uh, of the work of these physiological aestheticians. The main thing that protoplasm. Did I argue is that it gave an account? Heckel's, Heckel's theory of protoplasm, in particular, the the the, the wonderfully named uh, wave theory of protoplasm, or the the paragenesis of the plastidules, uh, was one in which, in the cell, in this kind of fairly inchoate and at that point not very well described. Um, uh, cytoplasm of the the cell. There was a kind of jelly-like area. Uh, And uh, Heckel, who was um, a a, a thoroughgoing Darwinian but was never very comfortable with Darwin's own pangenesis account of heredity, wanted to propose an alternative account of how the mechanisms of heredity actually work. And in this, he proposed that the uh, that the protoplasm, the, the, the uh, gelatinous character of the protoplasm, was a waveform medium, and he takes this over from, from Huxley, uh, so it had a good pedigree in this sense, uh, that was capable of holding waveform vibratory motions. Um, and this idea uh, uh, had a couple of um, uh, attractive features to scientists in the 1860s and 70s. One of them is that it, it, it seemed to connect... Uh, the uh, mechanics of heredity to the kind of um, uh, continuous character of a lot of physics in, in this area, in acoustics and electricity and so, so on, a kind of waveform model. Uh, and and perhaps even more importantly, it connected uh, the theory of the cell and the theory of heredity to the predominant modes of physiology, which, reg- which tried to register these kind of waveform uh, periodic motions of uh, of physiological functions, and so Haeckel elaborated a theory um, uh, that starts off with simple primitive protoplasm uh, uh, and and also uh, um, protozoic organisms, um, and uh, through which um, heredity is something that's stored in these waveform motions in the cells, and then is passed on through cell division um, and through normal um, uh, uh, um, uh, sexual reproduction um, to um, other uh, animals, uh, to, excuse me, to other cells. and, and uh, But it, over the course of the, uh, of the development of evolution, um, it differentiates along with the cells, uh, and the differentiations um, correspond to the differentiations of function. Um, and he- Heckel began to imagine the entire um, the, uh, organismic trees that he was fond of presenting as. Uh, a story of vibratory protoplasm from single celled organisms to complex organisms, humans at the top usually um, in the kind of anthropocentric uh, models that he that he produced. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, where the most highly differentiated vibratory protoplasm would then uh, would then uh, be found in in humans and so on. And it could correspond as well to psychology. It had a psychological dimension uh, as well that, that, that was vibratory. Um, and uh, this is a this is a view that um, it was it was highly speculative. Uh, but it was, it was plausible within a kind of conceptual architecture of the late 19th century. Um, and for that reason, uh, we see a lot of highly respectable people, many of whom renounced the theory later, uh, but hi- it was widely um, um, adhered to uh, and explained a lot of things um, in, in, in the late 19th century. Uh, so protoplasm becomes, in some sense, the ontology or the substrate of a vibratory world, um, that uh, that uh, which the instrumental uh, uh, features of graphical recording um, operate, that is to say, mm-hmm. gives a kind of ontology to the uh, a biological ontology to these recording systems, to this kind of experimental system that uh, um, uh, that had come into being.
2: Hmm. Mm-hmm. So that explains, in a way, variations between pulses and sort of you know these uh, you know these variables charted over time can be sort of seen in that as matter. Yeah, that's, that's right. interesting. And so yeah. then uh, I guess shifting to perhaps you know uh, a few levels up, kind of the organismal tree. Uh, you talk about. Uh, the actual work of linguistics using some of these physiological apparatuses. Um, So I'm wondering, first of all, I guess, what was linguistics like, I guess, you know, more linked up with philology before these kinds of recording um, devices? And then how did these transform uh, that theory?
3: But yeah, let me back up and just say one more thing about the protoplasm. Uh, Heckel's model of protoplasm uh, had codified into a, a model where uh, and, and, I, and I have a, an image from Alfred Binet from the late 1870s uh, that codifies, that shows this um, quite it's, – it's a picture from his laboratory where he has a picture of an infusoria, a single-celled organism uh, on one side, the human brain on the other, and the recording instruments in the middle. So what you're yeah, doing is trying, <laughs> trying to sort of – To measure these kinds of vibrations. So uh, one of the crucial aspects of this is that this ontology also in the end becomes a kind of, what you could say, an anthropology, that is an account of of, of human nature within this evolutionary framework. Um, And that's important for the linguistics because um, uh, linguistics uh, embarks on a similar kind of trajectory. Linguistics, like every discipline, has its own story in a way. Uh, And um, part of the story I tell is one uh, in which the uh, an older discipline of philology, was adapted to this new physiological uh, graphical recording um, uh, program. Uh, so uh, from the early 19th century, the beginnings of, of philology as a, as, a, um, as a science, of course, uh, well-documented and a, and, a, and, a, and a crucial, essential science in German universities in the early 19th century, um, had been largely a textual discipline, um, with Franz Bopp and uh, a range of others, uh, uh, and, of course, uh, had begun to chart the relations between uh, Indo-European languages, uh, Sanskrit, pro- Proto-Sanskrit had begun on the basis of, of, of the kind of morphology of, um, of sounds and, and linguistic structures to chart these, these, these long historical relations. Um, in the 1860s and 1870s, uh, this model, which had always had a slightly organic, an organicist kind of tinge to it in the work of these German philologists, had become adapted to a Darwinian model to a large extent um, through the work of, particularly of August Schleicher, a German. Um, and uh, so the model of linguistics was even more biologized in, in, in that sense. But it remained a textual discipline. Um, one in which you were um, concerned; people were concerned with the uh, with the words on the page, with the written word, um, and sound was seen as something secondary. Even though when we're, people were studying sound shifts and so on, it was sound only as mediated through language. Mm-hmm. Beginning in the 1860s and 70s, um, as some of these physiologists began to apply these graphical recordings to um, to vocalization, uh, they began to realize that they could. Um, uh, do things that were important. Um, they could say things about linguistics and vocalization and phonetics that no one had a- ever been able to say before. Um, and in many respects, they could get at phenomena in a more primary way uh, than, than, than mere textualists had, had done. Ernst Brucke, one of the pioneers of this, of this kind of thing, compared it to the difference between doing real anatomy and a kind of uh, pre vesalian anatomy where uh, it was all about the anatomy texts rather than actual dissections, uh, and gradually dissection kind of uh, runs ahead of, 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 of the authority of the text. Um, and there's something analogous to that going on here, where uh, they begin to do recordings of, of all sorts of vocalization. They begin, become in, interested in um, uh, the different ways that vocal sounds are produced, um, they begin to understand that, 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 vocal sounds and, and it varies from language to language are produced not just in the mouth, but in the chest. And there's a whole range of different organs of phonation, uh, involved, uh, and so on. Um, and, uh, along the way, uh, Ernst Brücke, um, uh, does a pioneering study of the vocalization of poetry as well, of German poetry, of North German, um, of North German verse. And one of the things that he's keen to show in this is that, uh, the um, uh, The actual way that sounds are made uh, in the in the recitation the professional recitation of poetry doesn 't correspond at all to the rules that uh, the rules of grammarians and the the theorists of prosody um, have handed down and those were of course in German had been theories of of language that had been adapted essentially from classical languages from Greek and Latin um, and had sort of forced German into this kind of classical procrustrian bed and uh, and, and Bruca shows that actually it doesn't work that way at all. It's actually going completely against the grain of a lot of these rules. Uh, and one has to kind of continually look the other way uh, to see how the language is actually working. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, meanwhile, in, in France in particular, um, a, a, a generation of linguists uh, using these new instruments begin to map out patois, uh, and become interested in producing linguistic maps of, of France. And this idea spreads throughout Europe. They, they develop instruments that they can take into the field uh, and, re- and graphically record. This is before the phonograph. Later, the phonograph tends to take over a lot of these kinds of studies. But initially, they're going out and they're graphically recording the different dialects uh, uh, across the country. And they're, uh, they're producing maps uh, of, of the small shifts um, over geographical space. Uh, in these various sounds, and they 're very interested in how people uh, essentially socially calibrate one another uh, to be able to understand how in, how in the world can people in a village understand a particular dialect and the people in the next village not understand it? everyone speaks the same way in one village and not in the other um, and this leads to a lot of um, a, a lot of reflection on the the kind of muscular training, the particular kind of skill that that speaking. Uh, speaking language involves and so on, uh, and this idea, this approach to language, um, comes as a bit of a revolution within linguistic science, uh, and comes as a as a huge challenge to mm-hmm. uh, to a more textually oriented philology. Um, uh, and uh, well, some of the the the, the problems are, are are well known, and one sees these tensions. If your readers of people might have read Saussure and so on, sees this kind of tension uh, in Saussure's work between phonetics. And um, and and a more textually oriented linguistic science, um, so that's the kind of broad uh, the broad trajectory of linguistic science. Uh, but with it comes a certain kind of image of humans uh, as well as uh, as kind of neuromuscular muscular muscular um, imitators uh, that we become. We're kind of empathic imitators of one another, and we calibrate our own muscular gestures. Uh, to uh, interactions with, uh, to, to, with one another. And this is true of language, but it's also true of gesture and, and other forms of uh, expression.
2: Mm-hmm. And so going straight actually to the, uh, the kind of artistic implications of that work in linguistics, I wanted to go ahead to your chapter on poetry because I found it interesting. And it sort of – uh, it didn't so much like stand out amidst the rest of the material um, like as being totally – Disparate, But because the subject matter is not um, purely visual and the book is full of so many great diagrams and illustrations, it does sort of like it, it is kind of a thing of itself. So I was wondering if you could describe the difficulties actually involved in working with poetry in a book that's about art and aesthetics and sort of how how you mediated that and what that chapter does for you.
3: Yes. Yes, and in fact, I, in many ways, it's my favorite chapter in the book. So I, I, uh, uh, things, I felt like if things came, really came together through that through that work, mm-hmm. uh, there's a couple of things to say about it. Uh, one thing to say about it is that the poets that I'm concerned with, who, who really lead this innovation in poetry, were uh, socially very close to the artists that I'm concerned with. So they were in constant conversation with them. Uh, this is a small group of people. Um, but the it points to one of the central problems that uh, this movement of transfer from the lab to the studio involves that is to say um, how do you uh, how do you translate the laboratory into things that people already know how to do and and that means uh, how to do within the work of a specific artistic medium and as you say uh, poetry is entirely different from painting in this respect um, and as i uh, didn't fully under, didn't fully appreciate beforehand. It's every bit as technical as uh, as anything else. <laughs> it, <laughs> prosody is a very technical business, uh, and it, and it was for these um, uh, poets as well. The, um, the the main concern that they have. So they're they're very fascinated by the work of these. Um, of, of bruca and then of a number of French um, uh, French um, physiologists on this on the vo- on vocalization, beginning with Etienne Jules Marais, uh, extending to Abbe Rousselot, who, who becomes the, the real giant of French phonetics in the mm-hmm. late early twentieth century. Um, uh, and they attend the, uh, Rousselot's lectures and, and Marais' lectures at the Collège de France, uh, and they're they're interested in this kind of thing, and they're very interested in the way in which. Uh, this, this finding that poetry, that, that real uh, that real poetry doesn't correspond to uh, the way that, that the rules of prosody as they've been handed down. Now, these are kind of avant-garde anarchists. They think that uh, they think that uh, the, the conventions and rules of the past are are are, are stifling. Um, in particular, one needs to remember that uh, that in the French case. Um, A little bit different from that in English and and some other languages, Um, the rules of prosody are codified by the French Academy, by the Académie Française, uh, and the rules of the French – the primary – the default French form of poetry, the Alexandrine form, were codified in the 17th century – with uh, great poets like Racine and, and Boileau and, and various others. Um, and so it has a very fixed metric structure modeled on classical Greek and Latin structures. Um, and uh, according to the kind of traditional French idea, there's no real getting around it. That's just the, the natural form that poetry takes in French. Um, and you can bend it and twist it a little bit. And, and poets uh, had tried to do that. But, but it, it was kind of locked into a very fixed syllabic metrical structure. Um, so everything about this was anathema to these avant-garde poets. They hated the state domination of the poetry. They didn't like the kind of rules. They wanted to get around it, and they saw a chance to do this in this new um, in this new physiology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, so, but the question then became how to translate uh, the physiology into the poetry. And in this case, um, they began to talk about the temporalities of the. Uh, of poetry, um, uh, as uh, as their uh, uh, rather the, the temporalities of poetry as a spoken language, in contrast to the uh, temporalities marked by classical metrical structures. Um, and graphic recordings of the voice had their own temporalities to them. You could see rises and pitches. You could see various moments of aspiration uh, in the format uh, and, and, and uh, in, in the making of different kinds of sounds, um, and so on. Uh, and so they began to, um, initially in a somewhat speculative way, although eventually then they began to really do uh, a lot of experimental work on this, um, began to think about um, what in poetry is uh, the, the central problem of lineation, that is to say, the length of a line, the the metrical structure of the line, the, uh, the, the moments of ac- accent um, uh, to these, um, and they began to... First of all, the first task was to show how real, lived poetry, even Alexandrine poetry, didn't actually follow the rules. So the mm. first point was nobody follows the rules anyway. Uh, they, it, just, it just looks that way on the page, and, and, and professors of literature all make it look like it all fits, but it really doesn't. <laughs> um, but this, but the corollary to that was the possibility of a new uh, free verse, as they called it, a vers libre, is the French term, uh, and the idea was, if that's the case, why hold to this, to this model of, uh, this rigid model of poetry? Why not allow verse to, to be free, uh, to, to operate according to different kinds of structures? Um, and with this, then, they, they began to adopt the same kinds of models that the painters were adopting. They began to look for the, the smallest possible units. They began to look for small uh, rhythmic units that then could be built into larger structures. Um, the other idea is that you could communicate um, the physiological rhythm of the poet, um, uh, him or herself, directly into the, into the poem, which would then be recovered by the reader or auditor of the poem. Uh, and um, so there's a kind of physiological communication between um, – that, that would work from um, poet to, to poetic work to uh, beholder, to the uh, artistic spectator – uh, that could be uh, that, that, that forms a whole a model of a transitive communication, a kind of physiological model that corresponds entirely to the model that the linguists were uh, busy articulating, um, uh, and it, it was highly imitative. It, it it corresponded to this kind of neuromuscular imitation model that that uh, that linguists were uh, were operating. Uh, operating under and so on, um, but the but the crucial point, uh, one of the crucial points for these uh, poets, these poets are real dedicated anarchists in a way. They want to mm-hmm. smash the old form of the alexandrine uh, and create something new. And the idea, in in direct correspondence with anarchist theories of things, anarchist theory, anarchists believe that the institutions of the received institutions of the world were all deeply corrupted, uh, in some sense, needed to be smashed, and a new, more harmonious, new uh, a truer, uh, truer to nature uh, uh, kinds of institutions needed to grow up in their place. And so this would happen in the domain of poetry as it would hopefully happen in the domain of banks and political institutions and a range of other things. Mm-hmm.
2: And, the, and those sensibilities definitely extended to the artistic community with, edu- which, with which, as you say, uh, the poets were constantly um, commingling with. So I wanted to then transition into uh, you know, the work on uh, physiological aesthetics in art. And I think that a good way to do that from uh, the book is actually to focus on a figure that you take up sort of the end of that uh, first chapter in the section, you take a large part of that chapter to talk to, uh, about him. So I was wondering if you could expound on uh, George Sherratt, uh as such a well-known figure and how he kind of fits in culturally and theoretically uh, to this movement. What does he derive from physiological aesthetics? To what extent is you know his camp of neo-impressionism involved in mediating these new definitions and technologies and then disseminating them to the broader community, as you discuss with the use of expert systems?
3: Yeah, yeah so Seurat is a, is, a, is the in this period the most important artist uh, for my story and um and by any account, he's one of the most important artists of this of this uh, late nineteenth century period. Um, he was so. I was very uh, involved in this group of avant in this avant garde circle uh, with these poets. Gustave Kahn was one of his closest friends. Um, Jules Laforgue was a friend. A number of other poets and this figure of Jean-Henri. This, this is this is this has been well known by art historians for for a long time, um, and it's been well known that he um, that he was very interested in science. Uh, uh, initially his early work was interested in the work of Helmholtz and Chevreul, uh, but he, uh, turns largely to the work of Charles henri as his kind of, as his kind of muse, as his kind of guru, I guess you could say. Uh, uh, he attends, uh, Henri's lectures at the Sorbonne, these kind of evening public lectures that, uh, that Henri gave. Uh, and along with it, a number of artists, uh, Camille Pizarro, Paul Signac, a range of these people attended these lectures, um, uh, Art historians have often been interested in the transmission of the conceptual ideas uh, and how they might have worked to uh, in in so uh, made it into Seurat's work. Um, but uh, I, as as you've mentioned, I'm interested in the way that Syrah, um was interested in translating this in directly into the paint in, into the paintings themselves. Now he wasn't the only one. Uh, uh, in fact, um, uh, his good friend Paul Signac was every bit as avid to do this and, and painted. Um, uh, used uh, the, the this kind of expert system as I describe it, um, also in in all of his works. Uh, not as great an artist as as Seurat in 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 many many ways. Much more of a kind of um, uh, a kind of uh, a rote kind of painter. Still a good painter, but but not a not 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 a not an artist at the same level of Seurat, as Seurat. Um, one of the things that's fascinating about this group of people is that they are. They're a kind of second-generation independent artists. That is to say, uh, the independent movement that begins with Manet and the Impressionists, with uh, with, uh, with Renoir and uh, Monet and all those sorts of people, Degas, uh, people who showed their works independently of the Salon. Uh, this group comes along, they're a little bit younger, they want to establish an identity for themselves separate from that older generation of people. Uh, their painting is in many ways in the same vein, but they define themselves in some respects in, uh, antagonistic, uh, terms to the Impressionists. And yet they're, they're thrown in with them, uh, to a certain extent. One of their main concerns is, uh, how to, uh, establish art in a world, uh, uh, free of, of salon patronage. So up until this point, all arts had been cro- controlled by state salons, by systems of, of painters. Um, artists had been trained largely in state institutions, uh, academies of Beaux-Arts and so on, as was Seurat, in fact. Um, uh, a- and they were interested in how to uh, how to sell their paintings, quite simply, in this world, which they thought... Was, it, it, was a, it was on one hand a free market world, but it was an anarchist world uh, as they understood it as well. Um, uh, so part of what they wanted was a means for gaining control over their painting and over the effects of their painting on the viewer. So they, they thought that in a market-based economy where things weren't mediated through all of these these, um, these mediators and, and all the expectations that traditional conventions of painting would have, they uh, could use the new psychophysiological aesthetic to... Gain control to paint in a way that they could have calculable effects on the viewers themselves. That view, that the viewers would experience joy or anguish or sadness—a whole catalog of emotions. They would find paintings vitalizing. Or inhibiting as they as they wanted, uh, they could even make it a little more complicated and bring various kinds of complicated uh, contradictions into the paintings in, in, in these kinds of ways, or different parts of the of the work, and so on. Um, so there was a, a, a movement to gain control over the work and the the science, this new physiological aesthetics. Um, seemed to offer that to them. And so it was very attractive to them in this way. And as anarchists, they, anarchists in this period were very pro-science, the leading anarchist theorists, Kropotkin and Recluse and so on, were mostly scientists themselves. So it all fit to a, a certain kind of picture, using science to, to gain control over a certain kind of market. Um, and so Seurat was a uh, and, and this applied to all the dimensions of physiological aesthetics, to the measurement of line, to the measurement of color, and so on. One important um, uh, feature of their work, another little piece in this larger puzzle, was that they were also uh, aesthetically committed Wagnerians. And, and what that means, uh, uh, they were uh, drawn to Richard Wagner's theory of the total work of art, the Gesamtkunstwerk, uh, uh, and they had this idea that, that art should... Uh, um, every work of art should embody all the other works of uh, all the other genres of art. So, painting should have a, a musical component, should have, an, uh, should have a poetic component, should evoke these uh, kinds of things um, through some uh, some technique that would uh, produce a kind of synesthesia uh, in a way. Um, and the psychophysiology um, uh, helped was a, was a, was a, provided a model for inducing synesthetic effects. Uh, in the viewer. so it, it promised all these kinds of things, um, uh, and so Seurat painted according to these methods. Uh, they were widely publicized by various figures across, uh, closely associated with the with the neo-impressionist movement. Above all, a figure, the the the, uh, the writer Felix Fénion, uh, who was one of the most trenchant art critics of the late 19th century, um, explained, tried to explain these theories to the public on how these things were working uh, and so on. Um, and it all was going swimmingly for a while. Um, but at a certain point, there was a bit of an artistic backlash. People um, began to say, make the charge, all this scientific painting, all this attempts to sort of calculate the various elements of the painting, um, didn't it produce a kind of mechanical painting? Something that was done um, uh, as if by a machine, <laughs> uh, and uh, and if so, what does that mean for art in a way? And, and above all, uh, and the, the, the charge that particularly stung Seurat was uh, the um, the idea that he wasn't really a creative genius. He wasn't the great artist that he pretended to. He just happened to he was lucky enough to happen upon a scientific method that allowed him to produce this work. So in this sense, he was he could be seen as a kind of high level hack rather than <laughs> uh, than a great artist. Um, some of the other artists weren't particularly concerned with this, but this, this bothered Sarah. But the genius of Sarah, I argue, in, uh, in, in his late works, and, and unfortunately, Sarah died at the age of 31, so all the paintings we have of Sarah were done uh, in a very uh, short amount of time. Um, uh, he, uh, um, but he, uh, in, his, in his last works, um, he began to draw an analogy um, between the problem of mechanization. Uh, this, this idea of mechanization in painting that was offered by the psychophysiological aesthetics and broader debates that were going along in society about mechanization. So uh, the mechanization of all sorts of different domains was something that was hotly debated and particularly in anarchist circles. There were a lot of disputes about what the, the meaning of machines were, were they expropriating, were they something good that gave that gave people more free time at the end and were liberating workers or were they something that were that was enslaving workers um, and Seurat realized that there was a direct analogy between those questions and the use of this new kind of technique in the arts. Uh, did it liberate the artist uh, or did it actually enslave the artist in some ways? Um, and uh, in some of his late paintings, um, um, I argue, he actually made this this problem, the theme of the painting, where the question of the mechanical production of the painting and the, in the content of the painting, the question of uh, whether mechanism was something socially enslaving or something uh, progressive, uh, were built into the concepts. They were highly self-reflexive paintings. They were reflexive on society, but they were also reflecting at the same time a about the the, the the problems, the questions that were inherent in this uh, new physiological aesthetic model of 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 the arts and, and the artwork.
2: Mm-hmm. And you have a really good description of this regarding his painting uh, Le Shahot, which is like you know a description of uh, a typical kind of body. Um, uh, Moulin Rouge-esque, you know, performance. When you and I think the way you describe it, it's still open to the interpretation of the viewer. Whether it is like the kind of mechanization of labor for pleasure, or you know, or otherwise. Whether you know, it's actually whether this represents some horizon of like future automation, right? So there's a way in which people who are you know in these kind of you know lower class uh, positions having to entertain wealthy gentlemen are sort of already stuck within this mechanized grid, right? And so yes. it sort of allows you to ponder that situation and then further allows you to ponder like the possibility of the you know the mechanization of the entire situation. So maybe the eventual even replacement of the human.
3: Yeah, that that's absolutely right. The canvas itself is a is a dense surface that I argue is really Fully, more fully realizes the, the transfer of this experimental system onto the, the work of art than anything else. But then the social content uh, was very disturbing. You don't know whether this is a kind of liberating, uh, this, this dance uh, is, a, is a kind of liberating scenario and there's a bunch of kind of um, uh, bourgeois, sort of lurid spectators with kind of um, pig-like features and so on uh, in the uh, uh, looking on, um, uh, and whether these dancers, these female dancers... Are, are being turned into kind of um, slavish machines or whether they're operating at a certain kind of um, position of superiority or liberation from their from those who are coming to see their uh, performances and so on uh, and yes uh, and so that it's a it's a it's a wonderful paradox and in fact it was something that was it was very controversial there were big debates about the meaning of these paintings in the leading anarchist publications mm. um, uh, people didn't know that there was a certain amount of anarchist uh, suspicion of, about where Seurat's loyalties actually lay. Uh, and, I, and I think he was actually a little vexed. I think that he he was actually interested in posing the question in a more kind of urgent way. He wasn't, a, he wasn't as dogmatic an anarchist. He was, he was a kind of anarchist fellow traveler, but he was less dogmatic than his friend Paul Signac, who tended to be a kind of party line sort of guy. Um So, and that's the fascination of a of a great artist is that he 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 raised this technique then to a kind of question in and of itself
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and so we're kind of beginning to run a little bit short on time, but I was wondering if you could kind of quickly address the the content of the last couple of chapters, the first being on uh synesthesia and the second one being on uh kinesthetics, so the blending yeah. of senses and then uh movement as a sense incorporated into art itself
3: yes, so. Um, so, part of what happens as this um, uh, theory, as this and these, these working methods become more and more established, um, is the uh, a, a broader interest in um, extending them to new new kinds of questions. The one chapter on synesthesia um, deals with that question, that Wagnerian question that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, uh, and how the protoplasm actually became the the way of anchoring this kind of Wagnerian. Uh, model. So Wagner was interested in synesthesia uh, as a as a as a general phenomenon, and he was interested in anchoring uh, in in his operas uh, in producing a whole set of synesthetic effects where you would invoke uh, sound with with uh, with color and color with sound and all these kinds of things. Um, these uh, late nineteenth century French um, avant-gardes were very interested in this, but protoplasm theories uh, provided. Uh, there, there were theorists of protoplasm. These various psychophysiologists were busy developing an account of the of the medical pathology of, of synesthesia, um, which they saw as a, a failure of protoplasm to differentiate mm. at a certain point. Uh, so there were various forms that this took. Uh, protoplasm uh, might not differentiate. Uh, uh, the the waveforms might not differentiate, and one might actually be stuck at a kind of at a more uh, at, a, at a kind of atavistic state of pre-differentiation. Um, and this could have a lot of things. I mean, there's a, there's a theory of, a, a kind of virtuous theory of homosexuality that's quite uh, widespread around this period. Edward Carpenter was a big, uh, in Britain, was a big proponent of this kind of, of this idea. But synesthesia was another one. Um, uh, uh, shamanism was another thing. So people who were kind of, they were more, they, the idea was that, that, that the division of the senses was in some sense a fall, was some sense a, a condition of advancement. Uh, in society, through civilization, in our own evolution, but it left us um, unable to naturally connect things that that had been once been undifferentiated. Um, so it's a very kind of ingenious and and and, and somewhat curious uh, idea. It also leads to the general issue that every artist in the late nineteenth century has to claim to be synesthetic, uh, whether they are or not. A great number are, <laughs> it turns out, but uh, but everyone needs to be able to sort of claim to be, um, and uh, and this becomes. Uh, part of a, a kind of incitement to produce synesthetic works, and it becomes a, a, a characteristic of early modernism, um, all the way from uh, Strindberg and Munch, all the way to Alexandra Skriabin and so on, uh, uh, and, and Kandinsky uh, to produce works that invokes synesthetic effects. Um, kinesthesia is related is, a, is another issue that, that comes about around the same time so synesthesia is the kind of synthesis of the of the senses of the five senses into into one or a set of um, uh, uh, interlocking uh, senses Kinesthesia is something like a sixth sense perhaps a master sense that physiologists become interested in in the 1890s earlier they described it as something called the muscle sense it has an older history in the 19th century but they began to call it uh, kinesthesia in the uh, in, in the 1890s, uh, later it becomes more uh, proprioception and, and other things, so mm-hmm. the word synesthesia kind of disappears to some extent. But the idea is that there's a kind of sixth sense, a master sense, a muscle sense, which um, which holds perception together. Um, and one of the things that happens, the, the general kind of theory of of aesthetic perception that emerges from physiological aesthetics um, in this period, um, becomes dominated by uh, kinesthesia. So a, a range of the effects that, that, that were described in the earlier chapters become kind of cat- categorical, what could be described as kind of categorical perceptual differences, all the small kind of um, uh, emotional, um, affective manipulations that could be calculated and brought in. But the broader kind of condition of kinesthesia was the one that made the whole thing possible. Uh, And this is a theory that emerges uh, that really comes into full bloom by about 1910, and really carries on uh, right through to about 1930 in the arts uh, in a a large way. And that is a certain model of what people called uh, came to call kinesthetic empathy. Uh, Empathy itself is a word is a translation of a German word. It's a coinage. Uh, Coined uh, in 1909 by Edward Titchener to to translate the German word Einfühlung, uh, a feeling into, which was initially a a purely aesthetic term. Uh, And the idea was our kinesthetic sense allows us to feel into into a work of art, to feel the movements of the line, to feel the movements, say, of music or color and so on. And we feel them bodily. Um, And that's the primary mode of perceiving artworks. Um, uh, is through this through this kind of empathic model, uh, and then within that a whole range of other specific effects uh, occur. Um, so around uh, uh, 1910, this model begins to take over, um, and it takes over at, at a certain moment of a certain uh, mutation within the. Within the uh, within the avant-garde arts, a certain kind of moment in modernism—it's the moment of futurism, it's the moment of cubism, it's the moment of uh, really the moment of a certain kind of abstract expressionism, and so on. Um, and abstract expressionism, uh, a good deal of futurist art, and so on, all embody this kinesthetic sense, this mm-hmm. this dynamic perception of movement um, uh, taken in by the body. Uh, and uh, everyone who's working in these, from, from people I write about, Picabia as a major cubist figure in, interested in this kind of thing, to uh, F.T. Marinetti and, and, and many of the futurists are interested in theorizing art uh, along this model of kinesthetic empathy, which interestingly has a, uh, has a corollary nowadays in a lot of kind of empathy motor neuron theories and so on that have been put forth in cognitive neuroscience. This was all done without any without any motor neurons or uh, any kind of uh, brain fMRI kinds of studies, uh, but was done with the, these models, the, these kinds of physiological instruments, and a, and a good deal of kind of speculative, um, descriptive um, uh, psychology as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, and this model becomes the, this is the dominant model of arts on the eve of the, of the First World War. As I say, it continues after the war. Uh, and then there's a bit of a backlash against all of this, uh, uh, by the 1920s.
2: Right, right. And then, as you say, it sort of continues in a sense in America, but not so much in post-war Europe.
3: That's right. It, it Interestingly enough, it has its adherence in Europe, um, but uh, there's a kind of rationalistic backlash. Um, some of it has to do with the, uh, with the war itself. There were people who made the, the charge that... Uh, um, uh, that uh, European intellectuals had been so drawn to physiological aesthetics and, and Bergsonism, which had become fairly merged together, uh, that they had uh, become vulnerable to demagogues. They had become prisoners of feeling, uh, intensities of feeling that allowed for kind of irrational, the kind of irrational that led to the First World War was all part of this. And what was needed was a more directive rationality that, uh, uh, in the arts and in culture more generally. Um, But as this happened, the European theories migrated uh, to the United States on the one hand and interestingly to the Soviet Union where they became, in both cases, entrenched in art schools where uh, American and Soviet art schools in the 1920s were busy teaching all these theories and all of the major artists from this period, from George O'Keefe and um, uh, Arthur Dove in the United States and a range of Soviet artists and so on were deeply steeped in these kinds of things. Uh, and uh, in Europe, it was they were more in the decline. Although there's, there are bits and pieces around.
2: Mm-hmm. Great. Well, Robert, thank you so much. And just to wrap things up, uh, we like to ask people what they're actually working on uh, now. So I'd love for you to expound on that a bit.
3: Uh, well, apart from a certain amount of work, I've joined forces with a number of other people. There's a kind of growing interest in physiological aesthetics, and I have a couple of collaborative projects with people where we're trying to map out a larger kind of uh, uh, kind of uh, international network. Um, but uh, my other work is actually going in a somewhat different direction, still interested in the lab and the world, but from a, a different perspective. I'm interested in uh, 19th century um, uh, chemistry and uh, agriculture. Uh, and I'm interested in kind of the, the global spread of, of fertilizer and scientific agriculture in the 19th century. Uh, so there's, a, there's an element of continuity and an element of, of complete something entirely different. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Great. Well, Robert, thank you so much for your time. And to listeners, uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. This has been New Books in Science, Technology and Society.